So welcome guys to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host Steve Hall and I'm honoured to have Lyle McDonald on the show. Um, I have actually been following Lyle's work for a good six years. Um, he was probably the, the person who I first kind of found who actually taught some sense. Um, although I didn't think it was sense, I didn't want to accept it as sense. Um, him and Alan Aragon were kind of the first two people that really helped me develop uh, within the industry, develop my physique. Um, so it's actually a big honor to actually talk to you, Lyle, even uh, if you're probably too humble to really feel it, but a lot of people look up to yourself, and I certainly do um, have a lot of respect for you and your work. Um, so if, if you don't know Lyle, uh, I'll be shocked because our audience, the listeners here, will certainly uh, know who you are, at least know of your work, and they should yeah. definitely check out bodyrecomposition.com. Um, I can remember commuting for what was my day job at the time and reading articles off that on my commute. Um, it kind of allowed that hour commute to go a lot quicker. So it was, yeah, right. it was fantastic. Um, and if you haven't got his books as well, I think I pretty much own every single one um, and absolutely love the protein ebook, I think is a brilliant piece. Obviously, flexible dieting and um, ultimate diet too was very, very interesting as well. So obviously, Lyle himself is interested in all aspects of kind of physiology and uh, performance for physique and kind of strength athletes, which is very much our audience um, and has huge amounts of experience within the field. So yeah, just a brief introduction if you if you haven't heard of Lyle. Um, and yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Lyle. Thank you, Stephen. And um, uh, it's sorry, go on. I was just gonna say, you know, on the uh, for people who don't know me, a quick quick process of like, you know, my background. Uh, a, I'm old as dirt. It's funny you mentioned, you know, having been following me for six years. I've been in the industry, I've been on the internet since 1994. I remember when it started. Um, I got into sports and athletics in high school. We had mandatory sports. I mean, I did sports as a kid in the 70s because everyone in America did. But my parents were musicians. I played a lot of video games. I was very much of that that generation. Got into sports, liked the changes I saw. I swam, I rode bikes. We had mandatory athletics at my high school. That Got into gymnastics very late. That led me to UCLA, where I studied exercise physiology. There, I was involved in cycling, and I got involved in rollerblading, you know, inline skating, which this was 88 to 93, when that was a super big fad. And you know, I was always a, a decent athlete, but like most, I wanted to be better. So mm -hmm. I... You know, I read all the magazines. I read, you know, that this is again pre-internet, and I, I pestered my exercise physiology professor endlessly with questions. And the more I realized just how how off a lot of it, so I, I got into PubMed or the Ovid at that point, and spent my weekends in the Biomed Library, and that's really what got me interested in. You know, performance, nutrition, supplements. I'd been kind of a chubby fat kid, so fat loss was always, you know, you always want to fix yourself. Um, Got on the internet in 94, was, have just watched it develop from, you know, Loose Collection. We did Usenet, which is before your time. I watched listservs, forums. I was, I think, one of the first people, and this would have been, you know, straight out of college. I, I knew everything. And, you know, really pushing research against a lot of, you know, what we would now call bro science. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake, 
athletes figure out a lot on their own. Bodybuilders have figured out a lot on their own, and there's a lot right that they were doing, and there's also a lot wrong in what you know in terms of things they thought worked didn't for the whatever. And I think I was really one of the first people pushing that, and I've watched that evidence-based community develop over the years with guys like Alan Aragon, um, Eric Helms, Lane Norton, Brad Contreras. There's a lot of, and it's funny because you know Eric has told me he's like, yeah. You know, I was reading your books. I'm just like, oh, I'm, you know, I wrote my first book in 98 on low-carb diets. I'm just like, I'm so old. I, wrote, I was writing about flexible dieting in 2004. And it's, you know, at the time, everyone was like, no, you can't. You can't. There's no way you can get lean on this. This is wrong. Now in 2017, everybody is talking yeah. about that. Some of them even credit me, you know, but but it's like I was there much, you know, because I was just digging in that literature. So anyway, that's and I've written, I think, 13 books. I am the old man or one of the old men in the industry now I'm working on a women's book that's probably never going to get done because women are too complicated. Okay. And so that, that's kind of, you know, my website has over 500 articles. You know, I've actually run out of stuff to talk about and I've just been around forever, mm -hmm. um, which it's it's at least in the evidence-based community i'm i'm well known i yeah. think outside of that i think we forget that most people still go to bodybuilding.com first they go to teenation which is a mixed very much a mixed bag and some folks get over it and they they find me you know some people never will um i, I got into a big argument with not argument discussion with uh uh, uh, Brad Schoenfeld, who also I forgot, and he was like, you know, evidence-based is really picking up. I'm like, dude, we could add up all the hits all of us get, and T Nation gets that in a day. Yeah, I'm like, still, and it always will be, and that's fine, but the, it is at least increasing, and there's more, there's far more good information out there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that that's a brief overview of my career, such as it is. Yeah, I think I was probably within the crowd where I think you were still relatively smaller back when I first came across yes. your work. And now it's the, yeah. our community has grown a, a great deal, but I think we still don't Very appreciate so. how niche we really still are. Yeah, because we're seeing the people that by definition are seeking us out. And, and it's a very much a, it, it just, you know, it's like go to any weight loss forum. And it, you'll swear every single person is, is having problems. The thing is, people that are successful don't come talk about it. Yeah. So all you're seeing is the hard cases. We're seeing the people who are interested in what we have to say. And what I find, you know, people, I don't market. I certainly don't market to the general public because I can't break, you know, that's just what I find is after people get run through the uh, all the garbage, they've done all the popular weight loss books, all the stuff that tells them calories, all of that crap. Finally, when they realize, and we all did it. I grew up reading muscle magazines. I'm not saying I was, we all did it because that's all there was until we realized it was BS. Mm -hmm. And when they eventually get through that phase, if they ever do, that's when they go start looking for better information. And that's when they find the science of it and realize that while much of what is written is right, more of it, especially online, is wrong. Mm -hmm. So, and I think part of what I struggled with, at least, and people might be able to kind of relate to this, is I thought it was a lot more complicated. And when I then got introduced to some of the things, I was like, that's way too simple. It can't possibly be that simple. I have drawn up workouts for people and they go, that's too simple. I go, do you want it to be complicated or effective? Yeah. Like, and, I, and again, I did it when I was in college. I, God, I spent so much time drawing up training programs with spreadsheets and percentages and charts, and they looked beautiful. You couldn't follow them, but they looked beautiful. <laughs> Same thing. And and the less 
complicated I got and the less neurotic about that I got, the better my results were, as, as contrary as yeah. that is. I think some of it people want it to be. And, of course, there is. You can only write so many basic articles. You, you just can't. So and it was bad in the muscle mag era. It was called, you know, monthly muscle mag syndrome. Every month you could go into the gym and see what it, you can still see it. Men's, men's Health runs an article on power cleans. Suddenly everyone at your gym is doing power cleans. And now you can go to any most of these major websites and there will be 10 articles a day that all contradict one another yeah. and say different things. And you have to write about something. So people complicate it very unnecessarily. You go talk to elite coaches. They are doing nothing but the basics over time. At the elite level, they get into details. Go look at what Charlie Francis was doing with his sprinters. It really wasn't very complicated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Same thing with you know the AIS track cycling team. I wrote a piece on my website that I called it everything you need to know about training. And it, it, it's just a, it's one of those strength coaches outlined what they did with their sprinters. And they were dominant until the UK took over um, with the, the lottery money. And it's very simple. It's very basic. It, it's just putting good principles to work, mm -hmm. selecting the right athletes, certainly, yeah. and doing that consistently over time. But we all go through it. it you do that when you're younger, um, even as a coach, you know, uh, phase one, you know, you know nothing. You, and I tell people, when you get started, use canned programs that are tested. You don't know enough to, yeah. to just do this. Get experience. Then in the middle, we think we know more than we do. And that's invariably when I find it gets overcomplicated. And then you realize that it's not really generating better results than what you were doing before. And then you come to the third phase. You realize what you do and do, don't know and realize, especially for the general population, we're not looking at the last percent. We're not looking at... You know, track cycling is a good example. Those those events are are, are determined three tenths of a second, right? Chris Hoy missed setting a world record in the kilo by five thousandths of a second, right? Point zero zero five seconds. He didn't. He if if it's an eyelash, yeah. a, a blink is three tenths of a second, five thousandths. That's where this stuff matters. That's, you know, the UK cycling team, they wanted this 1% and that 1%. And at the elite level, 10% is, is first and 50th. And I'm sorry, but if you're in the middle ground, 10%, you know, as, as Dave Tate once put it, you just moved to a slightly better level of suck. You're mm -hmm. still, you're never going to be, so why bother? Have a life. Yeah. Train three or four days a week. Go do more interesting things. You don't need to be in the gym 12 times, 12 times a week with these super complicated, guess what? You're never going to be, the, you know, you're just not going to reach that level. So anyway, um, we're all, we're both saying the same thing. No, yeah, I'm, tend, I'm actually really glad you said that um, because I actually have, and you'll probably experience it yourself because we are in this evidence-based field. I get a lot of, even some of my clients very much overthink the details and to have someone sure. like yourself say they don't need to do that. It's probably not worth the, the effort and kind of sure. the, the marginal gains, I think will really benefit yeah. from just hearing that. You know, and I think something else that goes very unconsidered in, in the industry in general, and it's it's the people who become coaches, by and large, they were the motivated athletes. They were the people that wanted to be in the gym, and and it, and it matters. You know, I've, I, I tend to have written books in two very different categories. You've got the men at 12% who want to get to eight, or the women at 20 who want to get a contest lean. There you're dealing with a lot of physiological issues in terms of metabolic slowdown, muscle loss. You're dealing with a situation that is very distinct. Now, that is a problem because we've had this drug problem in sports since the 70s, and a lot of what works in 
people that are using whether it's anabolic steroids, you know, there's there's even a light problem in women's fitness and figure now. Add a little bit of clan, a little bit of thyroid, a little bit of even light drugs, and you've generated a physiology that is not yeah. not normal in the sense of it's not how the body would normal. And they can get it. You hear these guys are like, yeah, I do an eight week diet and I gain muscle while I'm doing it. Well, that's because you change your drugs flat out. I don't care what you're doing with your diet. Now, if you're looking at the general population, someone who's a male that's at 35% body fat, anything, and if you give them, unless they just want it, you've got that personality profile that they're only happy with all the details, even if they don't need them. And and there can be a little bit of, it's pandering. I hate mm -hmm. to say that, but it is. You have to keep them happy to keep them consistent. Woman, she wants to do a little bit extra butt work. Fine, I don't yeah. care. She wants to do that extra tricep work. I, men want to do a little bit of extra abs. I don't care. As long as the 90% is good, this will keep them happy. But I find what happens is that the coaches who are typically the lean driven, always lifetime athletes don't have the concept of what the general population needs. I've been at gyms where a beginner walked in and the bodybuilder personal trainer said, all right, you're going to have to do morning fasted cardio, uh -huh. six meals, meals a day, every three hours with a little bit of lean protein. And the guy was just like, I can't, I can't, it's so far beyond what they can do can conceptualize or need. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of people really do forget that. That all the science, all this is great, but you know, and we'll they get into the fat loss debates. What's the best diet? The one you can stick to. Yeah. They, every study goes that fine in the short term, two or three pounds, who cares? And over a year, it all balances out. Every, it's about, it's within a pound, it's about within a kilo difference either way. Well, guess what? Who cares? Mm -hmm. A kilo. Like that doesn't mean anything. The one you can stick to, but there's this projection among athletes because they'll do it. I'll do it. Well, I did it. I won't do it anymore. But and they think that what they are or God forbid the beginner. Yeah, we're gonna do. I, I had a client who'd had a mastectomy. She'd had breast removal for cancer. A trainer took her in and gave her 20 set chest work on her first day because that's what he did. She never went back. I mean, why would you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and we also forget after 10 years in the field, you forget what it's like to be a beginner, very much so. Um, my, my speed debating coach, I spent some time pursuing ice speed skating. He said he loved working with beginners. Like, he loved working with high-level guys, but beginners made him go back and re-look re at the fundamentals yeah. every yeah. year. And you have to do that, because otherwise you lose touch with them and realize that person walking to the gym the first day, you just have to get him in there for mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. six months. You know, I put it, you need to break them in without breaking them. And we just forget that frequently. So anyway, um, totally but fine. yeah, I mean, so you see with the scientific details, they're great. Someone yeah. today asked about vibration platforms. They're great. When you want the last 1%, worry about it. When you're, when you're training a potential gold medalist, you worry about that. But even then those top guys that get into the details, everything else is already dialed. Yeah. That never, we've also forget that the complexity may we try to use that to make up for the principles and until you have the basic principles and the basic the basics in line none of you know eric helms has his excellent pyramids yeah. of the, the hierarchy of what's important and people focus on the tip before they've got the basics um and that's another really you know it's fun i love i love i love reading about it i mm -hmm. find it fascinating doesn't matter <laughs> for most people so yeah, I okay. think everyone, and that's going to relate to what I wanted to chat about with you, and that's everyone's all kind of after that quick fix, that silver bullet, sure. something that's going to make things happen faster. When in reality, 
And the thing we're going to talk about, kind of your transition periods between kind of massing and then dieting and dieting and then gaining weight um, yes. is something that a lot of people don't consider. And I think it bites people in the backside a lot of the time. It makes results come slower. Um, and if we can start off with kind of after you've lost fat, how do we mitigate as best as possible kind of gaining fat after that? Because of time and time again, we see people just gaining the, the fat that they've gained, lost back or more than. Sure. Um, I know you've written about this in great detail, but it was good to just kind of, yeah. Sure. So kind of, kind, of the, kind of the issues, right? There, There's, we know, and it, you know, I don't want to get into the whole metabolic damage issue. We, we know that there's metabolic adaptation to fat loss. The body very much fights fat loss and very much more than weight gain in general because dieting, even if you're a lean athlete, your body thinks you're starving to death. It doesn't, uh, dieting is really just starvation on a slower time course. You know, that's really have to, how you have to think about it. And you're seeing decreases in resting metabolic rate. Some of that is due to being smaller. Some of that is due to hormonal adaptations. Thyroid goes down, nervous system output. There's all these changes hormonally. Uh, thermic effect of food, the calories you burn when you eat, it, it really just changes because you're eating less. It's a very, it's minor effect. You burn less calories during activity, partly because you're smaller, partly because you're tired, but there's even changes in the muscle that you may burn 10% less calories than you would have. There's that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, that non the non-formal exercise component. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to estimate that varies so enormously. It's like 2,000 calories from, from highest to lowest. It's very environmental, but there's, a, there's an unconscious aspect of it. Yeah. People diet in general, that goes down. Um, a, you're smaller, B, the muscular adaptations, but C, you're tired. You simply move around less. Now, there is an oddity just for trivia. They frequently see in cases of like anorexia, like true, true, true starvation, there's an increase in activity, which is very contradictory. Now, mm. some of it may be anorexia is a whole different thing. We're dealing with a full-blown severe eating disorder with a lot going on underneath the hood, and I'm not a, by no means am I an expert on this. But I think the premise, you can see even in animals, the premise is that if you're starving, you better go find some food, and that means you need to get off your butt and go do it. Um, same reason that, you know, well, lack of sleep has kind of a different effect. Like lack of sleep not only affects hunger and appetite, and sleep gets dysregulated when you diet, but when you you don't sleep well, you're tired the next day. All of these are adaptations to try to get your body to burn less calories. That's why all the predictions, right? One's like, ah, create a deficit, fat loss, it'll take me, do the math, it'll take me 12 weeks to lose 12 pounds, and it's more like 24, mm -hmm. because as you lose fat and your metabolic rate goes down, what was a deficit, right? Here's your calorie level, becomes less and less and less till you hit basically a plateau. It's not metabolic, it's just adaptation. There are changes in fat cells, that fat wants to store more fat, your muscle burns less fat. All these things happen because your body wants to set you up for fat regain when calories become available. That's the basic evolutionary logic to it. Mm -hmm. So now in contradiction or contrary to that, there is an old piece of data the people who are leaner gain muscle more effectively when they overeat. And these seem very much at odds with one another. And, and this is drastically misinterpreted, in my opinion. There's a difference between being naturally lean 
and being dieted down lean. These are very distinctly different physiological states. And a lot of the early work on, on this whole thing was it showed that people who were, say, 150 pounds had X energy expenditure. People who had dieted to 150 pounds had a lower than predicted energy expenditure, right? Lower than, than their body weight would predict. And that's, so there's a difference between dieting down to 12% and being that guy who's always 12% genetically. Take the second guy who's genetically lean and overfeed them, and yes, they will gain muscle. But we know factually that after the end of a diet, that's when you're most prone to gain body fat, right? Even this idea in the physique community, oh, there's this big anabolic rebound after a diet. Right, you're refilling muscle glycogen, you're restoring water. There's frequently a weird thing where people get a little bit leaner when they start overeating, but it's it's a drop in cortisol, it's water balance, it's it's and they're regaining lost muscle frequently very rapidly. Muscle memories are a very real thing, but they never end up bigger than they started. It's just you said, you know, in, in before we started, you, you know, you mentioned you were coming out of a diet. One of the reasons men especially hate dieting, you look flat, you look stringy, you look mm -hmm. small. Um, and some of that's in the muscle, you deplete muscle glycogen, water, and, you know, and, and there's an old Garfield cartoon where, uh, I don't know if they have Garfield in the UK. I hope not. It's a, it's a terrible comic strip, but, but, you know, the John is, is there posing in, in, in the mirror for nothing. And Garfield comes by and, and just looks much and he goes, bet you didn't know you could flex fat, but it's true. Carrying a little more fat in, around your arms, around, you look bigger. Yeah. That goes away. And you got guys that, you know, naturals, if you're really lean, you're maybe 165. You know, if you're lucky, you're a heavyweight. But when you're 180 and carrying a little more fat and you diet down to 165, you don't look like you work out in clothes. You look just like any other dude. Now, when you take your clothes off and have six-pack and veins everywhere, people are just like, whoa. But you look small. Yes. And you feel small, and your strength is down, and you feel weak and small, and that's why a lot of men more so, women love it. Women love looking small. Men who want to lift weights. And if you ever want to mess with a dude in the gym that you know is dieting, just go, bro, have you lost size? <laughs> Diet that day. It will drive them crazy. So anyway, the point of this being that there's this weird pseudo anabolic rebound that's very much you know a visual trick. That's why it's why athletes carb load. They try to fill out when they're dieted down, but we know that biologically you are you are primed prime to gain fat. That's the premise of all of, the basis of all of this. So people go, okay, I'm done dieting, I'm lean, so I'm I'm primed. To, should I can I start my bulking phase? Well, if you want to get fat again, because no matter what anybody thinks, you are primed to gain body fat. So that that brings up the idea of this transition phase. And you know, back in 2004, I wrote about something called the full diet break. And, and when I wrote about it, it was more, probably more behavioral than anything, but there is a physiology to it, right? Without getting into the, the free meal or, you know, the refeed thing and whether or not that truly impacts metabolism and hormones, the answer is yes-ish, but it's too long of a topic to get into right now. Mm -hmm. The idea of the full diet break originally was to give you a mental and physical break from dieting, right? And it was just, it was, it was basically behavioral. Dieting is a grind. There's even changes in brain chemistry in terms of you become more attuned to food. They've shown that you know, you notice tasty food, and this is leptin-related. If you inject leptin into somebody, that goes away. Your brain, and we live in an environment where we are surrounded by food. Mm -hmm. It makes dieting very, very difficult in the modern world. It's why a lot of athletes and physique competitors, they just don't leave the house. <laughs> like It's a totally antisocial pathological, but it works. 
at least for the 12 weeks because they're starting to death. 100%. Everywhere you look, food tastes and commercials and all the social events revolves around food. So there's all these changes that make you just want to overeat. And the, the, the diet break gives you that. Again, it's a physiological break. It's a physical break. Dieting, you end up overtrained very easily. It's a psychological break, which was what it was originally studied for. But there is a physiology to it in that so leptin, this primary hormone, I'm sure you've had talked about it, had people talk about it. It, it. it tells the body how much body fat you're carrying and how much you're eating. So when we diet, it drops very, like, it drops 50% in a week. Clearly, we haven't lost 50% of our body fat because that would be rad. And then it goes down much more slowly as we lose fat. So it's kind of like super quick drop. And then this, well, it does the same thing in reverse. And leptin is sending this signal to the brain to impact thyroid stimulating hormone, nervous system output, reproductive hormones. Like it is really the regulator. And they've shown that once you diet down, if you inject leptin to pre-diet levels, it reverses like 90% of that. It raises metabolic, like it's, it's profound. Leptin was never going to work as a anti-obesity drug. But for dieters, it would be fantastic. It just never made it out of the clinic. It's, it's just, it's an injectable, it's like $500 a day right wow. now. Like it's, it's not productive, but we also know that we can raise leptin by raising calories. Because even if your body fat is down, right? Like let's say leptin would be here at 15% and it's here. Well, if you're dieting, it's still gonna be lower than it was because you're in a calorie deficit. Even at a lower body fat, leptin will be relatively higher if you're eating at maintenance because you're no longer in a deficit. Well, that's what the full diet break or the transition period is aimed at. The, the idea is to eat at your current, and again, your current maintenance is not your pre-diet maintenance. It's based on your lowered body weight. I usually adjust it five or 10% down just as a safety valve for that, that metabolic adaptation. And then you adjust, you know, that that's just to be careful. Maybe a little low, my, it's, it's in that range. And there's a really interesting study they did in, uh, military trainees in this, what they called this multi-stress environment, which was they were eating like 400 calories a day. They were sleeping like four hours a night. They were doing work with their pack, like 18 hours. And this was like SEAL training, brutal, brutal, brutal training. And they found that over several weeks, their body fat dropped to 4%. Their testosterone was castrate levels. Right? They were eunuchs, basically. Mm -hmm. Their thyroid was in the toilet. Their nervous system output was in the toilet. Their cortisol was through the roof. Like This is natural bodybuilding. This is what you, at 4%, and this is why the drug thing is so important. If you look at what drugged bodybuilders have done, they replace testosterone with steroids. They replace thyroid with thyroid hormone. They replace nerve with clenbuterol. They use growth hormone. They use cortisol blockers. They use appetite suppressants. They are fixing all the problems that dieting incurs, mm -hmm. and that's why they work so well. Um, that, that's just the reality of it. But what they found was that even when their activity was maintained, raising their calories to cover energy balance caused the hormones to recover in one week. Wow. Now, that's huge. Um, you know, I'd set up the, the original diet break for two weeks because that's what the study was. Mm -hmm. um, the original weird one that they, they were trying to, to do that I won't get into, but even one week at maintenance will basically recover hormones to normal. Now, if you're on a time frame, like, and this is more during the fat loss phase, Eric Helms and I have discussed this really, because he's, 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 an, if you haven't had him on your, your podcast yet, and he's amazing. Get he's me, helped get me on again. He's <laughs> back on the women's book. And he, he's very much, he's coached and he's, it's funny, the stuff I came 
the conclusions I came to from the research, he came to through trial and error. Like we awesome. basically reached the exact same, which is always nice to yeah. see that my, my theoretical, that what the research, which only makes sense, the science and practice should correspond. Now he only uses one week diet breaks during fat loss, but he's looking at a six month diet phase where someone has to be in shape on a given day. Yeah. And when you've got a time frame, it does, it's already a long enough diet to begin with. Most people don't have a time frame other than I want to be lean two weeks ago, but they, they are not. And if two weeks is a little bit more better than one for that person, you know, I, I tend to tell people, look, life gets in the way. You've got exams, you've got to work, you've got vacation. This is a process. This is a long-term process, whether you're lean this week or next week, whatever. So, so even one week will restore hormones to normal. Now, will that restore metabolism to normal? That might be a little bit more debatable. It'll be better than it was though, mm -hmm. right? Leptin, thyroid comes up fairly quickly. Um, a lot of the women's studies I'm looking at, this is a big concern. Women on low calories, their thyroid can tank within five days. That's, that's if they diet pathologically, they diet very poorly, but it can recover equally quickly. Now, thyroid can have longer-term effects, nervous system, all that stuff. But if you take that one or two weeks to maintain where you're at, this will recover your hormones. It will recover testosterone to higher levels. Cortisol will come down. All your metabolism will be up. At least some of those dietary adaptations will reverse. And even, even in the studies of the post-obese, right, a lot of them were like, wow, there's like a 15% decrease in metabolism at the end of a diet. The problem is when they were still, they were still dieting. Mm -hmm. When they bring them to weight maintenance and weight stability, it drops to like 5%. That's pretty significant. That's 10% yeah. off, off your resting metabolic rate is pretty significant on top of any, you know, you're eating more, your thermic effective food is slightly higher. People's NEAT goes up drastically because they're just not tired all the time, right? And we even, they're getting into the neurochemistry of this what's controlling meat and those changes reverse. So, so again, this reverse dieting thing where it's like, oh, you're maintaining at higher calories. Well, right, but it's not because of metabolic rate. It's because you're more active. You can train more intensely. You can train more effectively, which puts you, you know, people, their training intensity goes down. You're tired in the gym. You can't maintain your volume. You can't maintain, you can bring that back up. So using that, that transition phase, of, you know, one week is minimum. I would mm -hmm. prefer to see two. I mean, hell, a month would be better, but let's face it. We got to find a balance between optimal physiology and what people will put up with. Um, maintenance is also, this is more behavioral. For a lot of people, maintenance is harder than either gaining muscle or losing yeah. fat because it's a nebulous goal. This is very, this is, again, psychological. On top of the fact that your body's trying to make you to eat more, eat more, and it's it can be it's all often very like when you're in dieting mode, I'm dieting, switch flips. When I'm gaining, I gotta eat. I gotta I need that pint of ice cream at bedtime. You don't, but that's what that's a seeing holding steady feels very nebulous. It feels just like I'm watching my life, and I'm not making progress yeah. to my goals. You you really are though because. You're setting yourself up for a, not only a better mass gaining phase, but there's another, there's an after effect that's often not considered. And this this gets back into like, we won't have time to talk about, you know, optimal rates of muscle gain. Let's just say that it's way slower than most people think. It, you know, Aragon and Helms use a percentage of current body weight. I tend to use slightly more absolute 
scales in terms of you know pounds per year if you actually mm -hmm. if you math it out we're closer to one another than we're not it's a slightly different way of but again logically it should kind of approximate the same end result you know a beginner can gain two pounds a month an intermediate may gain one pound of muscle a month when you're advanced you might as well quit <laughs> you're gaining you know, you're working a year to gain a pound like it's just and if you math this out if you math out the rate of muscle gain calorically may take 3,500 calories or so. Do y'all still, do y'all use joules? Do I need to try to do this math in my head? No, no, we use calories. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's listening at multiply times 4.2, it's, it's in the realm of 13,000 <laughs> megajoules. It's somewhere in that range. Just multiply 3,500 by 4.2 and you'll get the number. Um, so if you math that out, so 35, let's say you're gaining a pound of muscle a month. That's 3,500 calorie surplus. Over 30 days, that's just over 100 calories a day. This is a microscopic deficit surplus. Now, I still see people recommending to gain a pound a week, four pounds a month. That means you're going to be gaining three pounds of body fat. Well, guess what? You just increased your dieting time by two to three weeks, right? So if you regain a ton of body fat, right after your diet not only is it ineffective you're gaining fat when you you're not effectively ready to gain muscle yet that just means that when you come back around right then you get fat again and then what to your point what do people do oh crap i'm getting fat i gotta go on another diet well great you dieted for three months you threw it away in three weeks now you feel like you need to diet again when's the muscle gain occurring all you're doing is just you're spinning your wheels for nothing you're, mm -hmm. you're basically screwing yourself coming and going by doing it this way so spending that two weeks at maintenance while it feels like a non-progress it's having uh, an add-on effect long term yeah. in terms of limiting fat gain in the early which means you don't have to diet as soon which means you have the potential to get into there's kind of like you know there's, there's a there's a muscle gaining there's like an inertia you get uh, Stuart McRobert, who wrote Hard Gainer magazine, he would talk about getting, you know, there's there's an inertia of training, right? Something most people don't do. They don't work submaximally, right? Mm -hmm. Intensity or death. That's bodybuilding. Look at strength programs. Look at strength athletes. Look at Olympic athletes. They take a couple weeks off. They take a month to build back up. They are giving themselves longer-term potential. Mm -hmm bodybuilder comes out of a diet they want to jump straight back into intense training when they're still like a little bit overtrained which is very easy to do when you diet because we always do too much activity with too few calories they're burned physically and psychologically they're and they're not biologic physiologically in place to gain muscle effectively so it just they just end up in this this awful cycle so taking those two weeks at least at the end of a fat loss diet has these knock-on effects now that brings us around to the other direction should you do a transition phase between gaining and fat loss? And, and there's kind of two different philosophies of this. Like back in the day, they would talk about doing hardening phases, right? You came out of your, you were gaining, you were eating everything there was to eat. They would do two weeks to harden up. And you read in the magazines and they would talk about, ah, I just clean up my diet a little bit. Where that, whatever, you're taking the, the crap out, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, lowering the dietary fat. And they would talk about, you know, now usually in hindsight, a lot of this is they were changing their drugs. This is just, it, factually, if you even get a little bit into the history of, of drug use in sport, 
a lot of this, these ideas, a lot of what is the, the lore and dogma of the sport came out of optimizing the diet and training around the drugs, not the other way around, mm-hmm. right? Germans did three weeks of their drug on one week off. So they programmed three weeks of intensity and one week easier. The Russians were doing, they would do six months of high volume training along with their high volume drug use. They had to pass the test, so then they would peak for six weeks. Not that this is an invalid system, but it's just you have to take and bodybuilders. It was all they were changing from heavy androgens, which retained a lot of water. They were taking those drugs out. They, of course, they would harden up. They were losing a lot of that that subcutaneous bloat, changing to more anabolic, quote unquote, anabolic compounds. But it still has validity, I think, for performance athletes. And I remember my. Now, on the one hand, yes, your metabolism will be highest when you're coming out of been eating a lot of food. Mm-hmm. If moving to maintenance, it's not going to drop. It's just not. You know, Dan Duchesne, who's an early drug guru, he said, ah, just go straight into dieting because your metabolism is its highest. The problem is, and this sounds kind of esoteric and there's not a lot, there's, there's maybe some research on it. Strength and muscle mass can be very transient, right? We tend to think in terms of individual workouts. Ah, we increase protein synthesis for 36 hours, then we need to train again. But but muscular remodeling is a long-term process. There's more going on than just muscular protein synthesis. I'm not the molecular bio guy anymore, and not that I ever really was. We hear about their, their thing, protein stability, right? The body, you may upregulate, you know, mRNA. That's what tells, or RNA is what tells the, you know, the, the ribosome what to make. Even But even expressing that doesn't mean the protein gets made. Frequently, there are other steps in this process. Your body is synthesizing connective tissue, changing enzymes. It's more than just that acute training effect, mm-hmm. which is why we get big after a workout. You know, you gain this much muscle or whatever. You gain, you know, protein synthesis goes up half of a percent or whatever whatever the numbers are. That's, that's a different thing. But there is kind of this, it seems like when people go straight as naturals, straight from... Uh, bulking or gaining or strength, if they immediately go into a diet, it seems like, I don't know, that there's just like this stabilization effect that you get. And, and again, some of it could just be glycogen and water. Yeah. Uh, frequently that drops off and that makes you look and feel smaller. Um, something you may have noticed that is a little bit tangential. You know, when you end a diet and start eating more, especially if you eat predominantly carbs and up your training, you seem to get a little bit leaner. Well, I think that's refilling muscle glycogen, mm-hmm. drop water. You used to hear about bodybuilding competitors. They would look great three days after yeah. the show because they would go eat all the all the pancakes for three days, and they would fill out muscle glycogen, intramuscular triglyceride, your junk loading, all that kind of stuff. They look great on Monday because they would they were too cautious in the days before. But I think that's just a visual. It's a trick, right? I, I call. I wrote this very silly article on my website that there's truth to. I call it the long-term delayed fat loss effect. It's one of my favorite pieces. But, and I was taking this. There's an old the long-term delayed training effect, yes. right? When we train in the gym, you do the work here, but you don't get stronger really till here, right? You do the volume, you do the work, but it's mm-hmm. not till you and quote, realize it within low, whatever, fitness fatigue, however you want to look at it, decrease training intensity, whatever, accumulate, intensify, et cetera, et cetera. I think muscle gain is, I've seen it too. I've had people do specialization programs, four to six weeks, they'll just hammer it and they'll make gains. And then in the two weeks when they reduce their training, they make more gains. 
Now, again, could be glycogen, could be a trick. I kind of don't care, yeah. <laughs> right? Size is size. We know this occurs, and I think taking that that stabilization phase before your diet, and again, you know, in, in the women's book, you know, I call it the pre-diet phase or a hardening phase or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that's, that's two weeks. Uh, you know, you may be bringing cardio in, which I think people bring cardio in too quickly, and I think that's that causes – uh, it, it can cause muscle loss. I think it causes apparent muscle loss too. Um, my own tra- my own training pro- partner is a very good natural bodybuilder. He was just like running burns muscle. And I was like, well, how are you really going from dieting? He would go from gaining to running every day. Wow, dude, you are totally deconditioned. Your body has has very much kind of lost the ability to use fat for fuel. Even that is something you need to do, right? When we're eating a lot of carbs and a lot of calories body tends to be burning those and storing fat, unfortunately. Some of those pathways can become downregulated. When muscle glycogen is full, your body uses carbs. and you're not doing any cardio, which many don't do during a mass gain phase, you, you, you're not good at using fat for fuel. I think if you look at successful physique competitors, naturals, they bring this in, you know, gradually, mm-hmm. right? Again, when I talked to Eric, he's like, and it's really the last month of their gaining phase. They're just stabilizing their training. That's when you start to bring in your cardio. And I'm talking three days a week, 20 minutes. Like, bring it in slowly. You're, you're detrained. You're unfit. Do not jump into intervals four days a week. You will break yourself, and your body's not prepared for it. So you do that phase. And it's it's hard to say whether that's whether you want to consider that part of the diet or part of the previous. It's kind of that that's a semantic yeah. thing because if you start adding all this up, suddenly your diet is going to take nine months. For, for again, if you're going, if a woman's going from 24 to 10%, she's already dieting for six months, realistically, a small woman. If you're then like, ah, oh, you need a month of a pre diet phase, well, that just sounds like forever. Cons- that's really part of the previous gaining phase, mm-hmm. right? Finish your gaining phase, take a couple of weeks minimum to just bring your calories to maintenance, which also helps you figure out where that is. Start bringing a little bit of cardio if you want to, if you're going to do like depletion training on, on your diet which is kind of high rep, short rest. Like that should never replace your heavy training, but sometimes adding that, you deplete muscle glycogen, you start to shift your body back to fat oxidation. It ensures that when you move into the diet, you'll be using fat for fuel more effectively. Mm-hmm. And you can stabilize your training so that your intensity can stay where it is. So so yeah, this does add time to the whole process. But again, in a sense, it's saving time because you're not having to just, I would say react, but it's almost overreact. I look small, I got to eat, start bulking. Oh God, I look fat, I got to diet. Mm-hmm. And just every four to six weeks, you're doing nothing effective. Um, even you know, even for physique competitors, this is something, again, I've discussed with Eric extensively, is they, they try to compete every year. So, right, they do a six-month diet. It takes them two to three months to get back to even where they can gain muscle effectively. Well, that leaves them three months. If they want to do another competition, they got to start their diet in three months. And if they're lucky, they gain three pounds. You know, if they're lucky enough to gain a pound a month, that's three pounds of muscle. That's nothing. That's just not a good. It's not a good cycle. So, do, putting these two week phases in in both directions has enormous both physiological and I think psychological. But you know, uh, again, yes, it can be psychologically stressful, but it lets you stabilize your training again, so you don't overtrain. You mm-hmm. give it, you give your body that chance to. And again, it's interesting. You look at what athletes, comp- competition athletes, 
they have cycled their training like this. Now, like not everybody does. You get the West side guys that max out every week. They're all injured. There's a lesson to be learned mm-hmm. from this. That breaks most people if they don't have very sturdy, sturdy joints. But most athletes, you know, they take two weeks off after their competition season ends, frequently completely off. They do a couple weeks just shaking out the cobwebs. They start building up their intensity. They'll do six weeks of heavy training, two weeks of stabilization. You know, uh, Dan Path, who's a very successful strength coach, he's talked about this. He's like, he'll see in the sprinters, they'll hit a new PR. That one day, you know, everything comes together. And then, now in the weight room, what do we do? Ah, I need to go up and wait again. And then again, because that's progressive overload. Well, it is and it isn't, right? Progressive overload is over time. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to several people that have found, through their own experience, when they hit a new a new weight, they stay there for two or three workouts. It's They don't lose it. They're now ready to make the next jump, and they are stabilizing your nervous. Again, in sports, it's your nervous system. It's connected tissue. It's a lot of different things, muscular coordination. But PATH has found that it can take – you may hit it, lose it. It takes two or three weeks to really stabilize that new level of performance because it's very stressful. And again, it's, it is different with dieting, but it's the, the concept. Athletes have done this for decades, and bodybuilders won't do it. Even now because – this will sound critical, and it's and it's not meant to be. It's just simply a statement of fact. People who get into bodybuilding and physique, I would say more so than in other sports, there's an obsessive component to all sports. To be successful at anything, you must be obsessive. People who are good at business, they work 16-hour days because all they want to do is make money, right? This just is what it is. You, to be successful, you have to have – but it can go to an unhealthy extreme. We get exercise bulimia, exercise addiction. It's a matter of degrees. But there's a neurosis that comes along with people that are interested in, in physique. There's been studies in women – that some women can st- mentally stress themselves into a loss of cycle, and they show high degrees of narcissism and a huge response to external validation. They care. Yeah. Well, if that's not most physique competitors, male or female, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sorry. And again, it's not. It just isn't what it is. It's the nature of the sport. To be, to want to get up on stage in uh, bikini bottoms or or board shorts, if you go that route, uh, or whatever, and have people admire your body. Of course, you have to be a narcissist. You have to be a narcissist to front a band. Like I said, it's mm-hmm. not. It, it is just the personality profile. But I think because of that, and and they everybody thinks, oh, if I miss a workout, my muscles are going to fall off. If I don't eat my, that's why there is so much neurotic literature that that is is aimed at that. It's what they want to hear. Yeah. Oh, if you don't eat within three tenths of a minute after your workout, you miss the anabolic window. That if you don't do all the, if you don't eat every two hours and forty three minutes, you will go into starvation mode. If you don't, you know, all this stuff is aimed at a population that wants to hear it. And we've all done it. I did it. You did it. And when once you move past that, you realize that you know the more chill you are, yeah. the better you are because you're not just neurotically, psychologically stressing yourself constantly, which causes its own set of problems. You do better. As as bizarre as that sounds, the more within limits, right? Mm-hmm. Within limits of how yeah, you stick to your diet, your macros, etc. But the more chill you get, and, and so you see physique competitors that will they dieted for six months. They are burnt physically psychologically and they want to return to heavy training the day after their contest dude you gotta be joking 
you, your body and mind need it. Now, yeah, you don't need to take a month. Of course, that's the other stream. That's what we don't hear about. Everyone holds up the success stories in that community as the way to diet because they look great for one day a year. We don't see them the rest of the year. We don't see the three months where they quit training, where they completely lose it because they have just put themselves through absolute mental and physical hell, eating this extremely clean, perfectionist, orthorexic level diet, training, you know, again, all this stuff. <laughs> There's this idea that you should train more on a diet. You're, that that's came out of the drug drugs because ma many guys in the 70s didn't even use drugs till they were dieting. It let them do things. Mm -hmm. When is your recovery the worst? When you're eating less, how can you possibly train more? Now, fine, you have to bring in low-intensity cardio within limits. Like, whatever, I get that. But, you know, my, my philosophical approach, and Eric and I argue about this ex extent, for extensive periods, I prefer people to reduce their volume when they diet. Focus on intensity. Now, the drawback is that you burn less calories, but if you actually look at how many calories weight training burns, not very much. Mm -hmm. it, you're lucky to burn three or four hundred calories an hour. It's really not that much. And and I would rather people not get burnt or sick by trying to maintain. You know, now Eric will maintain training volumes with people, and the difference here is he's coaching hands on, and he makes adjustments based on what he's seeing. I'm writing books for a population that I know doesn't listen, mm -hmm. and again, I'm not. I'm being a little snarky about that but it's true i find that if you give people an inch if you give them options they always make the wrong choice especially when it comes to fat loss they do dumb things i can't if i'm training someone yes i will make adjustments i will try to keep their volume higher i once trained a girl who was trying to diet for physique show at a powerlifting contest two weeks later wow it was a nightmare like she actually did it she made her show and she hit prs at the new body weight but I, I was in the gym with her and her, her training partner four days a week. I made adjustments. If she was wrecked, I'm like, you've done your two, you know, you've done your two sets of hypertrophy work. You're done. Mm -hmm. And I would send her home because she was cooked. And if she looked good, I would let, but that, that's an adjustment. I can't, I can't make those. I can't explain that in a book very well. Like, yes. Auto regulation is great. People won't do it. Right. They won't. I don't know if you've ever coached athletes, there is a, you know, they've looked at overtraining for 50 years and they've said, we've tried to find all these metrics and the best way is to ask an athlete how they're feeling. Well, yeah, you ask your athlete how they feel, then they lie to you and you ignore what they said because no athlete is going to say, coach, I'm tired. I don't yeah. want to train hard today because every day you're not training, your competition is training twice. That's how athletes think. Mm -hmm. Then you watch their warm up. You see that they look like warmed over dirt, because what they're going they're going to lie to you. They just are, and they lie to themselves. That's why you can't coach yourself, and some people can. It's very very difficult. And so the same. So anyway, the point of this being that when I write in my books what I want people to do when they diet, I have to predict yeah. the dumb things they will do. 
usually which came out of the dumb things that I did. But it's what I've seen over 20 years. You just learn to predict that. So Eric and I, he's coaching. He can maintain volume in his people and wants to to try to keep calories higher. He's also looking at, you know, again, a very six-month-long diet. Mm-hmm. Small differences in fat loss make a significant difference over six months. That the, the, those When you've got a small woman on low calories, you have to keep her activity as high as she can get away with. But again, you also find with people that blow themselves out in the gym while wow, they burn an extra 100 calories and they move around, they sit on their butts for three mm-hmm. hours, or 300 calories less. Well, guess what? You just cancel, you canceled yourself out frequently. Too much high intensity work will end up canceling itself later in the day because yeah. you're tired, right? If you've ever done a blowout interval session, you don't want to move around much. And that's part of the reason exercise doesn't always have its same 300 calories of exercise means no change you burn 300 calories more. If 600 calories of exercise means you burn 300 calorie less, guess what? You burn the same 300 calories extra for twice the effort mm-hmm. that may tire you out or injure you. So, so there's both approaches can be valid, but that's a change that should get made, you know, during that, during that transitionary period. Again, some people frequently see they continue gaining muscle mass if they cut their volume and increase their intensity to, to degrees. And then for me, I would rather see people focus on intensity during a fat loss diet. As a general rule, like, you know, again, diet breaks, which are these intermediate, essentially they're transitions between active dieting phases, right? And you can kind of look at that. There's almost three different ways to, you know, we've got, so you're coming out of mass gaining, two weeks of transition into your diet. Here's your active dieting block, six to 12 weeks, depending on how lean you are, what you can put, you know, People with more fat tend to be able to diet longer without a break. People who are leaner tend to need more frequent diet breaks, which also goes against common belief. Yeah. If you're getting leaner, you should diet harder, right? No, actually, you need to raise calories more frequently. You need to go on diet break because your body's fighting back harder, and that's very contradictory to what people think. Mm-hmm. So then you, you may have a transition phase between active blocks of dieting. Now, here you're transitioning to try to normalize metabolism and frequently people find that fat loss has slowed during the last dieting block and they stabilize and at least temporarily it will be faster well you could look at it well yeah it's faster here but you lost a week of dieting yes and no but if that week gives you more effective dieting you can also bump your volume up back up during the transition phase right that helps if you've lost a little bit of muscle if your activity's gone down significantly when your calories are higher, you can do more. And I will, you know, and I tell people, yeah, you can bump your volume. This will help, you know, you're eating more. Give those calories a place to go, mm-hmm. right? We know that training has the single largest effect on where calories are stored. They're not getting stored in muscle. There's only, they're either getting burned or stored as fat. So training more, keeping car- means you're going to refill muscle glycogen. That means less calories to go to fat cells. So you do these transition blocks between active dieting blocks. You finish your diet. You do at least a two-week transition phase, and then you start bringing calories back up. So there's really kind of three different – they're all effectively the same. Just as one, you're kind of reducing your volume and calories. The the other is you're increasing your volume and calories within limits. Um, You know, If you want to do that submaximal run-up to start to get ready for your next mass phase – that's when you do it is during the the diets to gaining transition phase. You know, take a few days off. Diets are, again, it depends on the diet. If you're dieting to 12%, 
whatever. I'm not that worried as a male. If you're at four, you're going to need a week to just whatever. Stay out of the gym, go play with kettlebells, go take a hike, do whatever. Just give your body and mind a break before you go back into the gym because you'll train more effectively. Then take a week submaximal, and then you can start ramping your intensity back up. But it, it may be a couple months. Again, with those performance athletes, they're not hitting peak volumes for four to eight weeks once they get back into training. And then they're going hard with two-week breaks and all that other stuff. And I think that's that works with dieting and training for, for uh, even people that want to improve their physique. Um, you know, now once you're at maintenance, just kind of because this question comes up, people want to, you know, does this have any validity when you're just maintaining where you're at? Not really. Like if you want to do a free, because again, there's that weird nebulous, I just want to keep my physique where I am. And that's, some people, that's all they want. They want to be buff for the beach. They want to be buff for the club. If you're trying to increase muscle mass and not get fat over time, realistically you're alternating you know what we call bulk and cut phases and i I don't i know those are very much uh frowned upon these days and i agree with that in the sense of the old gfh get freaking huge bulk phase where you just bulk up that's not effective again drug using bodybuilders could do it because they can drop 30 pounds of fat in 12 weeks because they have all the drugs natural if you put if you get to 20 percent body fat as a male you're dieting for half a year to more to get back to a reasonable level of body fat. And I've recommended for years, you know, going, you know, get to 10 or 10 or 11 percent, mm-hmm. gain until you hit 15 percent, stabilize, come back down, stabilize, come back up. Over time, this adds up to a lot of gained muscle while maintaining a reasonable body fat. Yeah. I know others use a 20 percent cutoff. I think that has more to do with differences in just how you measure stuff. You know, go go way back, go way back to the McCallum days, the 50s and 60s. He would say, you know, diet down, change your train, you know, cut your car, reduce your carbs, bring in the cardio. Once you get lean, he's like bulk until you get a little soft around the middle. And for a guy like that's as valid as anything. Mm-hmm. When you really are starting to when you when you've lost every bit of definition in your abs, you made a little bit before that, it's time to stabilize and diet a little bit. Because now you're at a point that you're gonna gain more fat, end up fatter than you want, and you know, visceral fat starts to accumulate, it's not only not healthy, you become insulin resistant, you may get worse partitioning of calories, you know, and and then that determines how long you're gonna gain for. And again, if you come out of a diet straight into overeating, you may go from 10 to 15% in a handful of weeks. Nah, maybe not that quickly, but you know, it, it's it's five to 10 pounds of body fat. If you do that in, in five to 10 weeks, well, guess what? You've not only thrown away all your progress, now it's time to diet again. And mm-hmm. you've made very few, very little in the in the way of strength and muscular gains. So yeah, it's more tedious and it's it's usually the hardest part especially the diet to gaining transition. This is all great in principle. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do <laughs> because you are very hungry yeah. and your body is telling you to eat and eat and eat. And again, frequently people will remove that switch, that I'm on a diet switch. They, that's more behavioral. That's, I mean, it is physiological. You can't separate the two, but you're in a position where your body is telling you with every ounce of physiological drive that it is time to eat. 
meat. And I am, you know, we can we can debate high carbon, high fat, but I think it, you know, no matter what you do in season, like whatever, when you're gaining, whatever you found is best for you. I do think in the transition phase, predominantly raising carbohydrates is your best bet for a number of reasons. One, carbs has the biggest impact on leptin in the short term. Dietary, mm-hmm. because it's it's the body is sensing very much glucose metabolism in the short term. Longer term, again, it's a body fat issue. We know that body fat is more likely to be stored. We don't convert carbs to fat. If you're training intensely, especially, it gives you that sink for the calories to go into. So you can, you know, and I know what I'm saying seems, I'm saying, A, maybe take a few days off. Again, that's coming out of an extreme competition level. Because if you've gotten to 4% as a male, you've got to get back to 10% because your physiology won't even normalize, right? You have to, same thing for a woman. A woman at 10% who's lost her menstrual cycle function, she's not even going to get close to normal physiology until she, they have to get fat. They, I hate to say get fat. They have to regain body fat again. They don't need to be worrying about it. The general person who's dieted to 10% to look good and be lean without being scary lean, because even at 8%, some men don't function well. You know, it's it's one of my longstanding jokes, right? Men diet to get abs, to get women, and when they're dieted that, they can't function sexually. Yeah. Uh, they have, I mean, you have no sex drive when you get too lean, and frequently, like I said, testosterone can hit castrate levels. Mm-hmm. It is not optimal for either talking to women or functioning if you get them into bed. So there's a happy medium and men do differ where they're, they feel kind of best. Yeah. The man dies 10%. He probably doesn't need to take a week off. He hasn't, he's not that burnt or he shouldn't be in any, in any case. And if you happen to start at say 25%, this is even another use of the transition period. You can't drop a male from 25% to 10% in one go. You can't, they want to do it. You can't do it. You need to do it in same thing, a woman who's 30%, she is not doing a physique contest this year because that is at least a year of dieting. Mm-hmm. She should first diet in a block with transitions to, say, 22 to 24, stay there, gain a little muscle. She can dive from 22 to 24. You can get to 10%. It still will take six or seven months. You're looking at a doubling of that if you're a woman at 30%. If you're a man at 20 to 25, you're going to need to diet to 15 to 18, stay there for a little while, Diet down a little bit, you know, and it, it, guys hate it. The nice thing is when you're carrying that much fat, you can gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Yeah. Just go start training, ramp your, get your volume up. You can keep, so you can get the, the magic, the recomposition. So yeah, a guy that gets to 10%, what he can do during the transition phase is lower his intensity to recover and do more. And this is especially true if he's followed my recommendation to cut volume, right? You can cut volume really significantly on a diet. You can cut it, volume and frequency up to like two thirds, as long as you keep the weight on the bar the same. This is another thing that came out of drug fuel bodybuilding. Ah, do high reps and lower your, and lower your intensity. And if you've got anabolics, that prevents muscle loss. And if you don't, your muscle goes bye-bye because without that tension stimulus, the muscle has no reason to stay. Uh, I don't, you know, in, in that sense. So you need to at le- least maintain some amount of heavy volume, heavy intensity. <laughs> now, when your calories come up, well, calories themselves are, in a sense, anabolic, right? You're 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 less like you're not going to lose muscle on maintenance calories because your body is not having to mobilize fuel. So once you finish the diet, you can work submaximally, but start increasing your training volume again. 
So let's say you cut to four heavy sets of chest a week, whatever it is. You know, you're doing eight sets twice a week. You cut to four sets twice a week or four sets even once a week. Believe it or not, we'll maintain your muscle for any active dieting block that's not too long. Mm -hmm. That's a six to eight week dot. Trust me, you're not going to lose anything. I promise. You probably will lose less than if you overtrain. Jack it back up during the transition phase. Cut it back. So during the first week, drop your intensity. Drop your weights 20%. Add two sets. Second week, keep the weights the same. Add two sets. You've given those carbs somewhere to go. Unless you're really going nuts with dietary fat, right? I'm a big donut fan. Not the best thing coming out of a diet. But... High dietary fat, keep carbs high and fat even controlled and calories, you know, not being too far of a surplus. Start raising your volume. Your, you are, your energy expenditure does go up. Meat will go up. It's offsetting some of those changes, again, unless you're going berserker with your calories. Second week, well, guess what? You're now back to your pre-diet volume. But your intensity has been controlled, so you're recovered. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're in your gaining phase. Now you can start pushing the weights up. Now you can start pushing the intensity, pushing the tension overload. Now you're gaining muscle, but you've already restored your metabolism as much as it's going to be, mm -hmm. you know, short, short of taking drugs. So, um, and again, same thing. When you move into your diet, if you're going to reduce volume, if you're going to add some higher rep work, because again, you deplete muscle glycogen. Increase, this is all in the ultimate diet too. in some of my other books, um, Articles on my website, uh, Weight Training for Fat Loss, two-part series. I talk about that in, in some detail. Some people do depletion, some don't. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do complexes. You can do kettlebell circuits, like whatever. It doesn't have to even be weight training work. Um, but that will enhance fat loss. So that that's kind of your over, you know that's that's kind of how you approach it from a training and diet standpoint. Yeah. You'd also be bringing another thing. I see people try to do again, mostly physique, lean physique competitors. They don't want to cut their cardio when they come out of their diet because they don't want to get fat. And again, when you're super lean, you have to. Yeah. You have to to be normal. Everyone's like, I want to be contest lean year-round. Well, no. <laughs> it's not healthy. It's not effective. Again, drugs, sure. Place everything with steroids and you can do it. Even in that military study, they basically rebounded pretty quickly to a, you know, a, a, a reasonable body fat percentage, whatever is eight or ten percent. It wasn't, you know, they were still military guys. They didn't get you have to do that to normalize function, and you're not going to gain muscle effectively till you do. That doesn't apply to the general yeah. lean dieter in the first place. So, um, but if you want to keep some cardio in, some people find that psychologically cardio if they do a little bit of activity that that helps them stick with their diet i'm like i'm very much like that on days that i train my diet is much better than on days that yeah. i don't that's like so if it helps yes but you get people that are like ah i'm gonna do intervals four days a week during a gaining phase sprinters do it no they don't please stop with the sprinter <laughs> thing they don't and they just know because they're you know if you must if you must keep a session in to keep men fine, but you can't do intervals four days a week and try to train legs heavy. It doesn't work. You, you, you it's, you're, you're, it's too much. It's just too much. You, you cannot, you're, you're just wasting recovery energy that should be going to muscle gain. And you know, some cycling is worse, is less worse for you or is better for you than running. Low intensity work is better for you than high intensity, but people don't, you know, this whole thing that, ah, walking on the treadmill, it, it burns a couple hundred calories, but it doesn't burn you out either. Trying to do an hour at 160, 
there's a reason endurance athletes don't do that more than once a week, and yet physique athletes or dieters think they can do it six days a week. Like, high-level athletes maybe do intervals twice a week. What makes you think you can do more? And they're eating enough. Like, seriously, what makes you think you can do more? And they're not, they're not doing heavy weight training five days a week, mm-hmm. and yet people try to do that very thing. So, so hopefully that kind of, kind of is that, that overview. Um, more than an overview. So. Yeah, big time. Um, really, really good hearing about all the different, the kind of major diet breaks and then the transitions even between those diet breaks. Um, just a fantastic overview and how <coughs> people can actually implement them themselves. And I think from what I took away from that, I'm, I quite I use diet breaks a lot more than I used to in the past. I used to quite rely on refeeds quite a bit and now kind of transitioned a bit more towards the diet breaks, probably because you people like yourself yeah. are coming out and revealing that this is more beneficial and i really find those transition periods are just great for kind of allowing things to stabilize allowing kind of them to the person psychologically and physiologically just to drop fatigue and then get back absolutely. into training um, absolutely really really powerful for that but because even that you know getting you know sort of the, the energy expenditure like I said, it's going down anyway because you're smaller and you're just your muscle metabolism is changing. But you're tired; you just can't put the work in, and that's another part of the reason. You know, again, people tend to use this very simple math. I have a maintenance of 2,500. I'm at a 2,000 calorie. I'm a 500 calorie deficit. Whether, excuse me, however they do it, and then that's a pound a week, 12 weeks, and then it doesn't work out that way because even if you're trying to maintain the same volume, if you're intensity, if you can't work as hard in the gym, your energy expenditure is yeah. dropping for yeah. that reason because you just are tired, you are fatigued all the time. Um, even you know a day off or from training, it has a humongous hormonal effect. Um, they've shown in men that training seven days, or even taking one day off during like marathon training, cortisol levels drop enormously. Right. And that that I mean, it's, it's really significant. Just that single day off a week is such you know, running very hard physically on the body. I know if you're you know, if you're on a tight time frame, realistically, you may need to do something every day. But again, it can't all be high intensity. You cannot lift weights effectively seven days a week. You know, it might be five if you're very well trained. But to your point, you start to get tired, res- giving yourself a couple weeks of just physical and mental recovery. Something I didn't touch on that I think is worth worth talking about said earlier, you know, there's a, there's a very big difference between general population, general overweight dieter, and the lean athlete. And we've kind of been focusing on this extreme. Now, I, in a sense, I find this more interesting in that the physiological issues are, there's more to worry about, but it's also a tiny percent of the population. Cheers like, for listening to that episode, guys. That was part one. Stay tuned for part two, in which we talk more about general pop, losing a lot of weight, the psychology behind then keeping that weight off and different strategies Lyle's seen that have worked to be very effective. So cheers guys, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you soon.